the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we begin chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. So let me uh, jump right in uh, to remind you that Dr. Luke, having been moved along by the Holy Spirit, has signaled that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, if you have your Bibles open in verse 51, or Bible apps, chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This kind of closes the first major section that started in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 50, where Jesus' ministry has been in and around the region of Galilee north of Jerusalem. And his journey to Jerusalem will take us through to chapter 19, where Jesus will enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, weeping over Jerusalem, knowing that they will reject him and they will be devastated, destroyed. Yet there are a lot of things that Jesus will continue to do before we get there, including the training, the mentoring of his disciples, particularly the twelve. But the end is near, and Luke is signaling toward that ultimate goal of Jesus. Last week, we, the first section closed with, again, his disciples struggling. What does it mean to, to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean that Jesus keeps saying over and over, I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the leaders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then, then I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. We saw them also arguing about who is the greatest, among them, and they didn't understand, they had no wisdom uh, about what it is, what it's like to have other people proclaiming the gospel is not with them. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 49, that they were outside the circle. According to them, you had to wear the same uniform, you had to be of the same squadron. Jesus is like, no, those who are with me are, are not against me. And then last week, we saw Jesus send out his disciples into a, the hostile region of Samaria, he sent them from Galilee to Jerusalem in between the Samaria. He sent them through Samaria to set up accommodations for them. A lot of people needed food and uh, a place to stay. And we saw last week that they were rejected, that the disciples were told to leave Samaria. There's hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritans who were half Jews and were looked down, by, down on by the Jewish people. And that's when James and John, they're known as their nicknames as Sons of Thunder, and just love and kindness and patience, turned to the Lord and said, let us call fire down from heaven and barbecue the Samaritans. Chapter 9, verse 54. Lord, do you want us to tell, send, tell fire to come down in heaven and consume them? And last week we closed with three conversations, if you remember, Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. Three disciples of Jesus. And Jesus spoke to these disciples about what it means to follow him. And really, if we were going to sum it up with one word, we would say the word is priority. Priority. That the king of kings, the king eternal, the Lord himself, who came down from heaven, who lived that, that, that required perfect, obedient life, one that we could never live, and then was hated and rejected and viciously treated, brutally crucified, and died in our place as our substitute in order, in order to be forgiven, to be reconciled to a holy God, uh, grant us eternal life, has the right to say, this is what it looks like to follow me. I must be first priority. Priority over all things. His call, Jesus' call to repent and believe and to follow is to reorient our whole life around him and the gospel. That's the call. And please hear me this morning. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to obey in order to be accepted by God, receive his love and grace. No, the call to follow Jesus comes from, flows out of his acceptance, love and grace that he lavished upon us by and through the gospel. Ephesians 1, 7. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? the riches of his grace, which he, Jesus, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Hear the call. Receive grace, love, and mercy because of what Christ has done and follow him. Reorienting our life, that's what it means to follow him. It's not our decision, it's his command. 
So as we get into our text this morning, we'll see that Jesus is continuing to teach and mentor his disciples, what it means to follow him. But we'll see today he does it through an on-the-job training. So three things. We'll see the proclamation of these disciples, 72, uh, verses 1 through 9, the pronouncement of judgment, verses 10 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 24, we'll see this, this theme, this purpose of rejoicing, joy, joy, and rejoicing three times in those couple of verses so number one we'll see the proclamation in verses one through nine we learn that the mission of Jesus' followers that he gave to the 12 in chapter nine is not simply for them that is for all of us right not just a selected few Jesus expands his ministry by calling 72 in verse one and sent them on ahead two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He's a, he's, a, he's a busy preacher. We learned early on that his call was to preach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God in many cities. That's why he was called. That, was, that is what he was called to do. Busy preacher. But it's always good as he sends them out two by two not to do ministry alone. And some of you know that. Some of you know that it's good to be together. It's good to have brothers and sisters together. It's good to be together two by two at least to encourage one another, is it not? Is it not to, to stand with each other, to hold each other accountable, to look out for one another? But I think the text also is, is uh, that Jesus sends them out two by two that, so there could be an evidence, if necessary, of, of two witnesses. Words spoken against his disciples. Now, some of your Bibles may have a footnote next to the number 72, or maybe some of your Bibles have the number 70. Uh, footnote MSS means manuscripts. Some manuscripts use 70, some 72. The numbers are somewhat interchangeable in Jewish traditions. Scholars debate on what number is correct. Uh, is it 70 to 72? But I think most of them believe that the number that Jesus is using is symbolic. It's symbolic either one of, the, of Genesis 10, where the, it's called the Table of the Nations, um, 70 names in the Hebrew text, 72 in the Greek Old Testament text, um, where the gospel is for the whole world. It represents all the nations. That's why Jesus sent out 70 or 72. Some would argue that because Moses in Numbers 11 appointed uh, uh, 72 elders to help, Jesus is a true and better Moses. And yet some also think that Jesus chose that number because the Sanhedrin, which was the, the supreme court of Israel in those days, was 70 men plus the high priest. So we're not sure exactly why Jesus, me personally, studying Luke together, uh, this and five dollars will get you a cup of coffee. Um, I think it's symbolic of Genesis 10. I think Jesus, and we've seen that already, uh, that his genealogy goes back to Adam, and Jesus is the savior of the whole world. That's why we're calling a mission to the world. But Jesus calls these people, but what I want us to see, really important in verse 1, is that word, sent them on ahead. He sent them. The word sent is a word we love to talk about here at King's Chapel, if you've been here any amount of time. We love talking about sent. It is the, it is the word, or the Greek word, apostolo, where we get the word apostles. It is the Latin word, missio. The missio day. We love to talk about the missio day. The mission, the sending of God, the sentness of God. And before we get into that mission, uh, notice how it gets started in our text. By declaring the possibilities of the harvest and by prayer. Notice that in our text. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. That's the possibilities. But the laborers are few. Therefore, because of that reason earnestly pray, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The possibility of a harvest abound. And that should direct God's people, you and I even today, to pray. To pray. The harvest is in need of harvesting and there's only a few that will reap this harvest. And part of the mission's objective, according to Jesus, is to expand the number of disciples. You saw it in Matthew 28, to make new disciples so that there are more numbers who can engage in this missionary task of proclaiming the gospel and they can grow. Pray, ask God, send laborers. Are we praying to send laborers? We receive the message and we're called to deliver the message. And here's the good news I want us to notice, that you're not the Lord of the harvest. I'm glad I'm not. He is. 
You're not being sent into your own harvest, but into his harvest, Lord of the harvest, into his harvest. It reminds me of Paul in Acts chapter 18. The apostle has been beaten up, dragged out of cities. Just, just, he's got it hard, man. He's doing dangerous ministry work. And yet, Jesus tells him in Corinth, do not be afraid. For I have many in this city, many in this city who are my people. They haven't come to Christ yet, but they're mine. And I'm sending you in for the harvest. The same Lord who calls us to follow him calls us to proclaim the gospel. Listen, the Lord is Lord over the means and the ends of our salvation. Every child, follower, disciple of Christ has been called into a relationship with him through the gospel and has been sent out as witnesses for Christ. We love to talk about this passage. Verse 3, go your way, go. Right? Every town, harvest is plentiful, labels are free, pray, but then go, verse 3. Go your way. And I would say, go praying. Behold, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. I'd be like, oh, what did you just say? <laughs> Ravishing teeth. Wolves, right? Sharp, circling around the prey. You saw the videos. You're like, yeah, that's how I feel at work. <laughs> you ever been to my school? If I say, you know, trying to show love and compassion and, and, and gentleness at the same time thinking, you know what, if I open my mouth about Jesus, I'm getting my head handed to me. But we must always remember that Jesus is not only sending us, he's empowering us with his presence. He's empowering us with his presence. He, the imagery should remind us as well, as we are lambs among wolves, that we are protected by our great God and our great shepherd, God himself. The real presence of danger we have to be careful, it shouldn't drive us to fear. I think that's big, the biggest problem that we face with mission. It shouldn't drive us to fear, but to trust. To trust God, to trust God's provision. To give us the words to say. To give us the actions to do. That he'll provide for us, he will help us. I mean, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God has sent you into some dark places? Into some places where you feel like a lamb among wolves? Where he will give you the words, he will protect you, he will provide for you. What he wants you to do is love them and share with them the good news of Christ. I think he has, especially in the culture we're living in. It begins with the priority of prayer as we see these opportunities. And then the present protection of God. But notice the promise of his provision. Just like the 12 apostles verse, uh, in chapter 9, these disciples... We're to completely rely on God, what God provided. Verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, travel lightly. Jesus made it clear that as they go on their journey, uh, uh, their provision will be the dependency upon God. They need to trust him as they go. In the, ne in the Near East, in the ancient Near East, when, when Jesus is talking about meeting people along the way, in, in those days, that would mean hours of conversation. And the point that Jesus is saying is, listen, uh, he's instructing them is, is an indication of, of, the, of the urgency and the weight of the mission. We don't have those hours, man. You don't have that time. Get to the place you're going to to proclaim the gospel. It's not only a lesson of faith, as I look at it, it's a lesson of humility. That you're not relying upon yourself, you're relying upon others. It's humble to ask people for help, especially for the basics. Now, I don't think this is prescriptive, that God's people at every level of, for every journey they are on, that they shouldn't get support, they shouldn't live on mission by, by, by uh, relying on their own resources. They're, we support our local and global partners. Um, so this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's talking about a, a specific journey in a specific time. That's where we get mixed up with Bible interpretation. Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? 
This short-term mission trip is not a pattern for everyone. We know that to be true because in Luke 22, Jesus approaching the cross. He turns to his disciples and says, you remember the day I sent you out without money bags, traveling bags, sandals? Did you guys lack anything? And the answer, of course, is no, we didn't, Lord. You, you provided for us. We were dependent upon you, dependent upon others, and, and you provided. And then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it and also a traveling bag. Yet the principle we'll see throughout Scripture is the act of declaring and demonstrating the gospel. That's timeless. That is not bound by culture. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells them to enter into the homes where there is peace. The, the son or the child of peace is the one who responds favorably to their message. As they came to the towns and into the cities and into the homes. That when they come, if their peace was upon the house and they welcomed them in, they, they, I look at it and say, well, they could be assured that the Prince of Peace is there. Right? The kingdom is not only proclaiming Jesus, but the presence of God is in their midst when they are open to receive the good news of the gospel. He says, enjoy them and stay there. Enjoy the provisions that they have for you. Don't go from house to house. Don't be begging others and trying. Just stay where you are. And as you minister to them, you've earned your wages. Look what it says. For the laborer deserves his wages. And like the, the 12, these 72 evangelists, gospel proclaimers, call to ministry in both word and deed. Notice what it says in verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them. It's not just a, magicious act, a magician act. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the basic message, was the coming of the kingdom, the advent of God's righteous rule through the person and through the work of King Jesus, the Messiah. This message was the mainstay, mainstay of their ministry. He gave them power to perform miracles so that they could minister to their soul and with the gospel proclamation and to their bodies as they were sick. It confirmed the truth, authenticity of the message we've talked about before. So when they hear the gospel, they see the gospel. Dr. Gelden Hughes writes this, the wonder-working healings will serve as an indication and proof of the fact that the royal sovereignty of God is exercised in and through Christ and his disciples. Thus, the inhabitants of the towns and villages that are to be visited will have the opportunity of recognizing and accepting the kingly sovereignty of God and thus, and will thus be able to experience its beneficial working in their own hearts and lives, end quote. There are times in Scripture, there are times in Scripture, especially during the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus while he walked this earth, while it's the gospel is infiltrating a culture, that there were clusters of miracles that were going on as an authentication of the message. Does God still work miracles? That's the question. Of course he does. The king is here. And his reality and his power are present. But whether he works miracles or not, the church is called to demonstrate the love of God in practical deeds of mercy and generosity. It, 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 it's essential to effective gospel ministry. Loving, caring, compassionate people will be listened to. That is why we talk about demonstrating and declaring the gospel here. When you show love and compassion, when you show kindness and generosity, it can serve as a confirmation of the message of the gospel. If it's hatred and arrogance, pride, self-righteousness, people won't want to hear it. And here was Jesus saying, listen, go out and be my ambassador. Live among people, loving people, sacrificing and serving people, and remember to tell them that I, King Jesus, Lord and Savior of the world, has come to inaugurate my eternal kingdom. But remember, as you go, that message will be offensive. There's an attractiveness about love, compassion, and kindness, but there's an offensiveness that the gospel will bring with it. That's been church history. The true gospel 
of the exclusivity of Christ will be offensive to others. Yet people will experience the kingdom of God. They will experience forgiveness of sins through the preaching of the gospel and the confirmation of it as we love and care for people. Every Christ follower family, every Christ follower is called to labor for the harvest. Are there wolves, false teachers that come in and want to ravage the church? Absolutely. That's why we have pastors and elders. That's why we have competent community group leaders who lead and shepherd and protect as well under the authority of the ultimate protection, the ultimate shepherd, his name is Jesus. Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal equipment, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever and amen. There is a peace of welcoming the kingdom, but there's also a peril. Pronouncement of judgment. Verses 10 through 11. Jesus instructs his disciples, just as he did with the 12, that they are to shake the dust of their feet as a testimony against those who will not receive them. We see this warning. During the time of Christ, if you don't know this, the, the Jewish people would, leave from, would go from Galilee to Jerusalem or in other, have to go through other Gentile land. They would take the dirt that was you know, accumulated to their sandals and shake it off before they stepped into Israel, into their land. And it would be a symbolic. And they, they didn't want to defile the land, the Gentile dirt. So Jesus says symbolically here as well, these ordinary unnamed disciples. By the way, you notice that? Like, we, don't, we have the name of the 12, but these 72, there's no name. God knows who they are. God knows who you are. God knows those who are laboring in the harvest. And these unnamed uh, um, ordinary disciples were to understand that there will be those who will be offended by the message, those who will not receive the message. They will not, they will not repent and believe the gospel that King Jesus come. They were to shake off the dust from their feet as an act of renunciation of responsibility of their rejection. That's on you. As I said last week, Jesus didn't say go turn them to dust that James and John wanted to do. Kind of short-sighted, antagonistic approach to the gospel. Turn and burn, man. This is your one chance, right? But a, this is a vivid, and, and let me say, this is a vivid but also a gracious warning to those who reject the kingdom's message for them then and for us today. This, this merciful, prophetic act is done, and we see it being done, as a warning, as, as a way, uh, as a way or, or an intention to help us to think deeply about our spiritual condition. Do I really know Christ? Jesus begins with his pronouncement of judgment with an example and a warning. About, look what it says, the notorious city known Sodom, which was up in smoke, Genesis 19, verse 12. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day than the day of Sodom than for your town, than for your town. The kingdom of God has come. There is rejection. He says it'll be more bearable on that day than Sodom. The cities that reject the message are warned that the kingdom of God has come near, but the opportunity that they missed and rejected will Bring accountability to them. And then Jesus, reminiscent of Old Testament prophets, pronounces judgment with a couple of woes. Look at me, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But... It will be more bearable, there's that word again, in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. Now, notice a couple of things here. First of all, there's a day of judgment. That's what Jesus is talking about. I know that's not our favorite topic, the day of judgment. That's why we do expository preaching. This is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus and the rest of Scripture teaches us that everything we do 
everything we have done, everything that we have said, everything that we didn't do and left undone, we'll give an account before God. This is a moment that is inescapable in history, family. It is impossible to avoid that he is king, he is Lord, he is God, he is judge. We'll stand before him. And these woes are directed against specific cities, yes, in Galilee, uh, where Jesus was ministering and the mission of the gospel was being proclaimed and rejected. There are towns of Andrew and Peter and Philip. There are towns near where Jesus fed 5,000. These are cities that he says are comparable to two unrighteous cities of the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon. For their sin, you read in the Old Testament, and their oppression against God is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Jesus says the miracles that I've done and the work of the ministry and the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God have been done in those cities. They would have repented in sackcloth, ashes, an act of contrition, humiliation, deep grief. Verse 15, even Capernaum, another another north shore sea of Galilee, a village in the north shore. Jesus spent a lot of time. Their destiny is not heaven. Their destiny is where? Hades place of torment you know if there's anyone that understood rejection it's Jesus Christ and therefore he anticipates that you know what we too will receive rejection with the message the message of the mission and that is the gospel their preaching of the gospel will be offensive you see when you and I proclaim the kingdom of God has come the reign and rule of God has come it destroys and disintegrates our little puny reign and righteousness of our own kingdom. And people find that offensive. They want to be lord of their own lives, saviors of their own life, justify themselves. Say, no, 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 no. God created you. He loves you. You can't be your own lord and savior. It's not going to work. Judgment awaits for you. Repent and believe in King Jesus. And that can be offensive. Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Notice how the rejection of Christ will bring about a greater judgment. More bearable, Jesus said, will be the judgment of Sidon and Tyre and Sidon. That's how serious it is to reject the only Savior, King of the universe. Scripture teaches us that not all sin is equal or the amount of guilt the same. It is sinful both to to lust after someone else's spouse. It's very different to physically commit adultery with that person. Some sins are far more egregious than others. All sins are serious. Of course, James says if we sin against one point of the law, we sin against the whole law. Any sin is enough to condemn to hell, but there are degrees. The Apostle Paul warned his readers not to heap up or pile up sin against the day of judgment. Jesus also here in this text talking about the different degrees of accountability. Because our culpability, culpability is directly related to the light that we received. Every time you hear the gospel preached, every time you hear the good news of Christ, and every time you hear the call to come to Jesus, and you reject that call, the deeper the culpability you will have before God. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly. Listen, hell is real and hot and forever is a long time. Place of torment. How the degrees of punishment will give out, Scripture doesn't say, but Scripture plainly says there'll be a greater capacity for suffering Actually, a, a, a measure of affliction of the wrath of God in degrees, and particularly here about rejecting Christ after hearing the message of the gospel. All the lost will suffer. For some suffering will be worse than others. But family, please, please hear me this morning. These woes, these warnings and woes are an act of mercy. There's nothing more loving, nothing more merciful than warning a person to flee from a burning building. It takes boldness, it takes love. We must tell the truth that God is angry about sin. 
His judgment and kingdom is near. This doesn't mean we're going to be arrogant, calling fire down from heaven, uncaring in our approach to sharing Christ, but we also know that we need to share the whole counsel of God. We need to share the whole counsel of God. And that's why it drives me a little crazy with some of these false teachers, won't name any, Joel Osteen, <laughs> who won't talk about sin, who won't talk about judgment. He says, I don't want to talk about those terms, he says, or talk about judgment. That was for a, that was for a generation ago. I want to, I'm here only to encourage people. Here's the truth. Any person will not speak plainly with you about the state of your soul is not helpful at all. People will not speak about the real dangers of real hell and coming judgment, not loving you as God would love you because God is warning you. And he loves you more than anyone. For the message about Jesus to be good news, there got to be bad news. The bad news is God is a God of condemnation. The good news is we can escape condemnation through faith in the wrath-absorbing, substitutionary self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son who's the one who takes away our just wrath by becoming our sin-bearer. Or we can bear the wrath ourselves if we reject him and walk away. That's our choice. Believe and be saved. That's the choice we hope you make. And people who receive the message are sent to declare the message. And those who reject the message of the kingdom face judgment, but also reject God himself. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you Here's me, Jesus says. It goes further. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects who? The one who sent me. Jesus what? Sent by God the Father. He is God the Son, sent into human history as a missionary to die for our sins. He says, the Father has sent me. He says it over and over in the gospel according to John. A missionary to live and die and rise again. A missionary sent into a time, a place, a people, a culture, a language to bring the love of God, to bring the life of God to people. And he's sending us. Jesus is also ascending God, sending us, you and me, you and I today, into cities, into towns, into schools, into businesses, into homes to love, to seek, to serve. To seek the well-being of all people. See salvation happen as many people, Paul would say, as possible. I really need you to see that this morning. I really need you to see that this morning. That we are a sent people. Our homes are places where we have a place of peace to invite people who never met Jesus. Our community groups are places of peace to invite people who never met Jesus. So the question is, are we willing to do the hard labor of gospel witnessing, sowing seeds of the gospel, sharing the good news of the gospel, gathering together, looking for opportunities to lead people to Christ? Are you ready? And when you share the gospel of the kingdom and people reject it, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. Anyone who rejects Jesus rejects God who sent them. Clearly two categories of people. Those who receive Jesus as God, Savior, and Christ, and those who reject him as Savior, Christ, and God. Which are you this morning? Our prayer is that you receive Jesus Christ and not reject him. And family, let me say this and we move on to our third point. Do we live as missionaries where we are? Maybe been called to a foreign land. Speak to me after the service. But are we living life? Are we going? Are we being sent? with a sense of weightiness of our gospel conversations that we have with others? Do we, do we, do we, do we go with the weightiness of, of that reality, that truth, that, that eternal destiny hanging in the balance of our conversations? It should. Jesus said so. Lastly, the purpose of rejoicing. This section broken up in two parts. Uh, we see the first section, the 72 disciples return from their gospel preaching and demonstrating journey, verse 17. You can almost hear the excitement, right? The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like, which one of our gospel partners, local or global, would not come stand before the church and say, man, it was, we had such huge success. 
what a great report. You can imagine them running up to Jesus, bubbling with excitement, right? Overwhelming and overflowing enthusiasm. Great smiles on their face, face declaring, we healed the sick. We preached the good news. And even the demons were subject to our commands. Lord, we said, be gone and be quiet in your name. And they were powerless. They did everything we said to do, commanded them to do. And then, of course, one parent in the background said, can we get that power over our own kids? <laughs> they don't listen to anything we say. This was great. And here's the takeaway. Like, Jesus is our victory. God wins the battle, and that's worth celebrating. And then Jesus goes on to explain the disciples' authority by describing the enemy's fall, verse 18. They came back, subject to his name. Jesus like, yeah, I get that, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay? The archenemy of God, the accuser of God's people. His name means adversary. The one that was created by God, a beautiful angel who rebelled against God, his creator, and was punished because of his pride and was banished from glory. Created to worship, to serve, to honor, and to obey and to glorify God. He didn't want to honor God. He wanted to be God. He didn't want to glorify God. He wanted God's glory. This fall from heaven, commentators say, well, it, it could mean a couple of things. Uh, it could point to Jesus' ultimate victory over, uh, over the enemy of the cross, through the cross. Colossians 2.15, he talks about the cross of Christ. Uh, he's talking about his cross, his blood that was shed, and it says that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He triumphed over them in Christ. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Or maybe he's alluding to Isaiah 14 when he saw Satan in his pre-incarnate state fall from heaven. But I think what Jesus is saying is that he knew all about Satan's defeat during the expedition, during the preaching and demonstrating of the gospel while they went from city to city. He had prophetic knowledge of what was going on. He was aware of Satan's being defeated over and over again in ministry. The Greek verb here is literally, I was seeing Satan as lightning from heaven falling. In other words, I've granted you this authority. It is my authority that I've been given to you. And when you're taking this authority and you are exercising this authority, it's to show you that I am victorious over the enemy. Verse 19, I've given you this authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. It doesn't say the Father gives it. says I have given it to you. Now the figurative language, serpents and scorpions, and by the way, that's figurative. And if you want to go and do some snake handling, you go right ahead, don't include me. That's not what it means. In the Old Testament, it's figurative language. They use it all the time. Genesis 3.15 even, where it said that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, right? One commentator said, when it comes to evil, the disciples can overcome anything that opposes them. For Christ's authority overcomes the enemies. In the war with Satan, Jesus' ministry is D-Day, end quote. That's what Jesus is talking about. And I've said this before. We have to be balanced. There is an enemy, there is an enemy. There is an arch enemy of God. There is an arch enemy against us as we proclaim the gospel. We have to be careful, though. There's two extremes, right? We, we, we know he's real, but we need to take personal responsibility. We could say the devil made me do it. The old Flip Wilson, none of you know who he is. Or there's no such thing as evil, demons, or Satan, anybody trying to stop us. His greatest weapon... It's not power, because he has none. It's deception. It's lies. If he can get us to believe a lie, if he can deceive us to believe a lie, he has controlling influence over us. That's how it works. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your word, for thy word is truth. We can't be possessed, but we can be influenced. Verse 20. I saw him fall. I've given you that power. Nevertheless, uh, this, this passage, this verse is amazing. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that, in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Jesus doesn't say, yo, change that frown, change that smile into a frown. Be down. You better turn that joy into mourning. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there, a greater, there's, there is a greater joy than the ministry and the authority that you were given over evil. And that joy, the greater joy, is the gospel. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Some of us never make a list, right? The only list we're on is the spam calls. Hey, we got car warranty. You're on the call. But this is language that comes from Scripture. Moses mediated with the children of Israel rebelling against God, says, God, please blot out of your book, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, spare them, cause me to be blotted out. Daniel, in, 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 when, when the Israel was uh, in exile, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. There's a book, there's a name that's been written. The Apostle Paul talks about the book of life in Philippians 4, Revelation 13, 8 says that the names of God's people were written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. There's no greater joy. There is no greater joy than knowing that the King of kings, Lord of heaven, Lord of glory, knows and remembers and has your name listed. Amen? In fact, he has an accurate record of our citizenship in heaven. It is God's own guarantee of eternal life. Jesus says of someone who trusted him, he says, I will never blot him out of the book of life. Revelation 3. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So when Jesus says, rejoice that your name is written in the, in the book of life, in the book of heaven, it is to reassure us that he's keeping track, protecting and guaranteeing and providing our salvation. Tremendous amount of joy, listen, when serving God. There's tremendous out of, out of joy as ministering to others. There's tremendous amount of joy in growing in your Christ-likeness, the fruitfulness of ministry. But Jesus saying even that joy is subordinate to the greater joy of the gospel itself. That's what he's saying. He has written our names in heaven. Everything in this world will come to an end, but our salvation will last forever. The gospel is so important. The joy of the gospel is so important. Why? Because it will keep us from being prideful, look at me. Or it will keep us from being in despair, I could never live up. Gospel-centered joy means we look at life, all of life, through the lens of Christ and the gospel. We look at the cross. We see his broken body. His wrath-atoning sacrifice, his glorious resurrection from the dead, and we realize just how serious, heinous, and sin and brokenness and wickedness we truly are. So much so that God had to go to that great length to send his son to be brutally crucified, to bear the weight and wrath of our sin in order to be forgiven, to be accepted, and to be loved by God. But we also look back at the cross and we see the love of God. We see the, the value. We see the, the, the worth we are to God that he would do that to rescue us. To see God's great love for us that he would go to such lengths to forgive us, to save us, to receive us. Famous quote Tim Keller. The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone, end quote. Jesus is saying, rejoice in me. Rejoice in what I've done for you. Rejoice in me. That what things you could never do on your own. And if that wasn't great news, Luke goes on. Verse 21. In that hour, he, that's Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. <sighs> he talks about the Holy Spirit so much in this book. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. We read that back in chapter 3. He's led by the Holy Spirit into wilderness in chapter 4. Now we see Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And just in case there's any question or talk or misunderstanding that somehow we can save ourselves, somehow earn our right into a relationship with God, Jesus makes it clear that is the work of the triune God. Look at the verse. He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and give thanks. 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you see the triune God? You see the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And may I say that they are with rejoicing with everlasting joy in one another, pouring out glory and love toward one another from eternity past to eternity future, one God. And we just get this glimpse as Jesus rejoicing and thanking in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> A glimpse of God glorifying and enjoying himself. The most joyous person in the universe family is God himself. Some of you think, well, I've met some of his children. I would not know that. God is joyful. More, there is more joy and no more, I should say, there is more joyful, no one more joyful uh, than the triune God of the Bible. And what is interesting in verse 21, the word rejoice, you can underline that, is, there, is a different Greek word than the one in verse 17 and verse 20. You see it, see it there three times. The verse in verse 20, uh, 21, rejoice, Jesus rejoicing, is a word, a Greek word that is very, uh, is more intense. It's divine rejoicing. It's perfect joy. It's unspoiled joy. It is, it is undiminished joy. It is divine joy. Fullness of joy. Exuberant elation, elation of joy. Think about it. <laughs> Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no, there's no covetousness. There's no guilt. There's no falsehood. There's no betrayal. There's only love and affection. God is both the subject and the object of joy. And in this joy, the Son thanks God the Father for revealing His, his will and, 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 and His glorious saving work to those that has been hidden but yet now has been revealed. Look what He says. The revelation of the Spirit. Great joy. Jesus said, I thank you. He's rejoicing. I thank you. You've hidden these things from the wise understanding and reveal them to children. That was your gracious will. Rejoicing over the sovereignty of God. Rejoicing over the elect of his people. Rejoicing in the Father's gracious reveal, uh, excuse me, reveal will to his children. Actually, that word there is babies. Children, small children. In other words, the humble people who acknowledge their inadequacies, who cannot save themselves, who come to him by simple faith because of the revelation of God, revealing to them things of the gospel, of the truth of the Christ, and they come with simple childlike faith. And all of this do, look what it says in verse 22, to the sovereign pleasure of the Father and the Son, who has committed all things. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son is except the Father. Notice what he's saying here. Notice what he's saying here, family. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom what? The Son chooses to reveal him. The only way to come to know the Father in saving and joy-producing way is to have him revealed to us, to reveal to you and me, to reveal to them by the choice of the Son. That's what the text says. God's eternal purposes, and ultimately for his glory and the glory of his Son, has a plan of salvation. He intends to work it in space and time through the mission, through the calling of his disciples, through the sending of his people to bring sinners to repentance and faith and to salvation. The plan to open their eyes to see the sweetness and loveliness of King Jesus whom he reveals himself to. Here's the point. No one knows God. No one knows God the Father apart from God the Son. Okay, what religious background? I don't care how spiritual you think you may be or anyone may be. Every religion on the planet, if you do not know Christ, the Son, the eternal God, the Son, crucified on your behalf, risen from your behalf, lived that perfect life, died for your sins, rose from the dead, if you do not receive, if you do not know him, you don't know God. It's that simple. You cannot, you will not come into connection with God without Jesus. And that's the point. 
You need atonement for sins. You need forgiveness of sins. You need, you need someone to bring you into the presence of a holy God. And that can only happen through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Simply, you need Jesus. Family, you need Jesus. I need Jesus. Now as the band comes up, read this last verse with me. As we prepare. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Listen, prophets and kings of old have not seen what you've seen. Have not seen this demonstration of the gospel. Have not seen the demonstration of my authority, of my power, of the king that has come and inaugurated his kingdom. Blessed are you. And then Jesus will say in John, chapter 20, the end of the gospel account. Blessed are you that see it, but... Blessed of you that don't see it and still believe. That's us. Do you believe? Have you trusted Christ? Do you recognize that the day of judgment is going to come? You can't stop it. But God has made a way. In love and in grace and in mercy, God has made a way. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. That anyone who believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that is a turning from your sin and turning from your own lordship and turning to him. And that's what this table represents. The bread, the body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed for your sins. Have you trusted Christ? Maybe today's the day where God is speaking to your heart about judgment, about his provision of salvation, about escaping judgment and, and finding full joy in Jesus Christ by trusting and believing in him. Maybe it's today's the day. And if today's the day, I pray that you would trust Christ, you could partake of communion. This table is for believers. If you're not a believer and you're here, we're glad you're here. We love you. We're going to tell you more about Jesus. As long as you keep staying, we're going to tell you about Jesus. That's all we got. But if you trusted Christ, it's not a King's Chapel table, it's a Christian table. The band's going to play. We're going to spend some time confessing, repenting, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. I will come up and lead us. So you grab the elements and sit back down, and then I will lead us. And family, let me say this last. Do you understand the mission and the weightiness of that call? Lots of books out there you can read about sharing your faith. I could talk to you about that. God will give you the words, I'm sure. Are you willing to look to make connections, to love and to care, and to show love, to show compassion, to show generosity, so that a door will be open, you can share the goodness of Christ with others. Let's live on mission together. Let's see what God's going to do. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this message, as, as difficult as it is to speak of things of eternity, as particularly of eternity that is Christless, in everlasting torment. But God, we know that reality to be so, but we also know that you love and have provided for your people. So Father, as we continue to sing, we take a communion, we pray your spirit will, will move in our hearts that we will all see the beauty and glory of Christ. If there's someone here that has not repented of their sins and placed their whole life on him, we pray that your spirit will lead them to do that that they would submit and rely to the King of Kings, no longer being Lord of their lives, but resting in you and following you wherever you would take us, knowing that you're good and glorious and the only provision of our salvation. Help us to continue to worship as we sing and take of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.